Hey everyone, this is Inside Politics, election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison, and today we're going to be joined by Amy Steele. She's the founder and executive director of the New North Carolina Project. If you haven't heard of that, you've probably heard of what and who motivated it. In 2013, after the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, I got to work with the New Georgia Project, founded that to start registering voters. I then created another organization to help turn those voters into active voters. That's, of course, Georgia's Stacey Abrams, whose efforts are largely credited with turning Georgia blue in 2020. The new North Carolina project hopes to have similar success. And we're also going to talk about the rise of unaffiliated voters with Chris Cooper, a political scientist at Western Carolina University. Unaffiliated voters recently became the largest voting bloc in North Carolina. They now outnumber Democrats by nearly 20,000 voters and Republicans by 320,000. And joining me in the studio are former Charlotte Observer reporters Jim Morrill and Tim Funk. Jim and Tim, hey everybody. How are you, man? Hey, Steve. What intrigues you guys about the new North Carolina project? What's on your mind? What do you want to learn? Well, you know, uh, if Sherry Beasley wins, she would make history in North Carolina, and she could end up being the only black woman in the U.S. Senate, again, if she wins. So I'd be interested to know if that kind of historical thing really energizes African-American voters in North Carolina, or are they more focused on the price of gas and groceries this year? You know, the Stacey Abrams effort in Georgia, which had tremendous success last year with two Democratic senators and uh, the fact that Joe Biden carried the state. And I, I just wonder how, how they think they can replicate it here in North Carolina, if in fact they do. I think one thing that's that's going to be interesting to ask about is whether Democrats can recapture the level of support they had in 2008 and 2012 when Barack Obama was on the ballot. Since then, Democrats have won African-American voters, continue to win them overwhelmingly, but the margins have slipped a little bit. And is that kind of a normal bounce back with Obama not on the ballot? Or is there something kind of a little more uh, long term going on, a little more significant that will impact the Democratic Party? I'm curious to hear about that. OK, so let's get to it. Amy Steele is a former Spanish teacher and school principal. She's also run twice for the State House of Representatives from Cabarrus County. She's now turned her political interests to the new North Carolina Project. She's the founder and executive director of the group. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I'll start. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the new North Carolina Project. What are you doing? What do you hope to accomplish? Sure. So we are really stepping into a space of trying to engage more voters of color and more people of color in the political and electoral process. Uh, that work was started out of a necessity and really just my experience of running for office, having really not had the kind of turnout in communities in general, but more specifically in communities of color across the state, but in my district particularly. And so that's where the work started. And that's what we're doing. Every day we make direct contact with people of color in a variety of spaces from a variety of income levels and a variety of racial groups. Amy, I think your organization is modeled on, on that of Stacey Abrams in Georgia. How do you think you can replicate that success if you can for Democrats in North Carolina? 
Well, one of the most important things I want to point out is that they've been doing this work for the last decade. In North Carolina, we have a lot of opportunity to collaborate as grassroots organizations to be able to produce a new electorate that looks more like the population that lives here. So we've been very careful to honor the work of Georgia, the New Georgia Project, as well as ask questions, learn, research, and try to figure out what gems we have here in North Carolina that we can use in our efforts to uh, flip our state, but more importantly, engage people of color in the electoral process, which is something that they haven't traditionally been engaged in or invested in over the last couple of years. Amy, if Sherry Beasley is elected to the U.S. Senate, she'd make North Carolina history, the only African-American woman ever elected statewide, I believe. And she could be the only black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate. Does that kind of history possibility uh, energizing, engaging African-American voters, or are they more focused on the price of gas and groceries? So let's say both and. (laughs) Um, Yes, the possibility of making history yet again. I mean, we saw the history made with the newly confirmed uh, Supreme Court of the United States Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. And now we have an opportunity to see another woman, black woman in particular, make history as the first black person from our state to enter into that office. So yes, I believe people of color and black people particularly are excited about the possibility of this history making endeavor. But more importantly, and more presently, we are dealing with a crisis. We are seeing high housing prices all across our state. We're seeing an really a a lack of supply of habitable homes in some of our rural areas of North Carolina. And we're seeing the great economic divide really manifest itself at the gas pumps, in the grocery stores, but in the housing market as well, whether you're renting or buying. It's important to amplify those issues because people can't get close to deciding if they want to vote for a U.S. senator more so than deciding if they're going to eat or how they're going to eat and how they're going to get back and forth to work. The two have to be done in conjunction with one another, but one is not more important than the other. Or if it is, the more local issue is more prevalent and more important in the lives of all people in North Carolina. Are you concerned they're going to blame the Democrats and President Biden for those prices? Blame can go a bunch of different ways and blame has gone a bunch of different ways. Uh, Yes, we have a sitting president right now who it happens to be in office while inflation is current occurring. Um, Yeah, of course, President Biden can be blamed. The Democratic Party could be blamed. The Republican Party could be blamed. The General Assembly of North Carolina could be blamed. What's most important is that we stop trying to figure out who's responsible and take action ourselves. And that action is going to involve making sure you decide that enough is enough. I'm going to listen to all of the information I have, synthesize it and figure out if I'm going to vote and how I'm going to vote and how I'm going to get involved in this process of making my life better. We can't take an election off trying to figure out who did what and why and where and when. We have to take the reins and we have to do a better job of just really driving the decisions that are happening in the political landscape. So, yes, I'm concerned that the Democrats will be uh, falsely blamed or blamed in general. But I'm also concerned that the blame won't turn into action or it will turn into inaction. You talked about some of the lessons you learned from Georgia. Can you describe a little bit about just like how you guys are going about this on the ground? Is it a focus on new registrations or is it a focus on getting people who are already registered, getting them to vote? Can you kind of walk through a little bit just actually like the boots on the ground? What are you guys doing? 
Well, the, I think the, the way to summarize what we're doing is that we're meeting people where they are. If they are in you know, the community, we're meeting them there. If they're just at home, we're meeting them there. If they're only wanting to respond by phone, we're meeting them there. If they are only wanting to text, we're meeting them there. If they only want to appeal on social media and be on social media, we're meeting them there. Our focus has been too often in the Democratic Party and just in politics in general is you only talk to those who are actively engaged and you only worry and invest in those who are actively showing up and voting. Well, there are a whole lot of other people who are not actively engaged, who are not actively showing up, who need to be registered to vote. Our focus is there. So how big of an opening for you and the Democrats are all these folks that are moving to North Carolina from other more maybe Democratic friendly states? How are you going at them? Is that part of what you're planning? If they fall into the category of people of color, then they're part of our our group outreach. What I will tell you is that when we talk to people who are on the ground, who are from other states, they tell us, you know, I thought North Carolina was more progressive than this. You know, the demographics show this and, you know, your makeup of even who's registered to what party shows this. And really, it shows even even. But if you look at our electoral outcomes and who's who's holding office, it's really not balanced according to the even split of of just part party representation. So what we know is when we do talk to people who are not from here, who just relocated, they do have high hopes that North Carolina can flip or become a little bit less conservative, which is what it looks like to uh, outsiders or other people who are moving in from other states. And really, it's not a slight to people who are conservative. It's really more along the lines of we need more balance in our political representation. I was looking at at some of the political maps of the change in vote from the 2016 to the 2020 election in terms of which precincts and which areas became more blue, which became more red. Throughout North Carolina, throughout the country, that some of the heavily African-American precincts shifted slightly to the red. Uh, Mm -hmm. toward Donald Trump's way. Not a lot, but two, three, four, five percentage points. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. And I was a Democratic candidate at the time. We didn't show up like we traditionally show up. Democrats have a known history and tradition of in-depth field and organizational organizing. Even if it does come three, four, five months before the election, it's still something that Democrats have been very good at doing. 2020 literally slowed us down to a worm's pace. And because of that, we were not able to see the type of engagement, voter contact, direct person or community to community outreach, which really sent us into a downward spiral, as it turns out, with election results and with people who actually wanted to have someone come by their house, have someone have a community event. They come out, they get registered to vote. They go back, turn that into action. We did see record-breaking turnout in black and brown communities as a percentage of who was registered to vote. What we did not see was record-breaking turnout as a percentage of people who were eligible to register to vote who did not vote in 2020. I want to ask one more, but I saw some polling done kind of going back several elections that African-American women are still incredibly loyal to the Democratic Party, that their support has not wavered at all. Um, African-American men, there's been a little bit of slippage going back from 2008 when Obama first ran to 2020. So a slight gender gap there. Is that just kind of similar to the gender gaps we see everywhere or is there something else going on? 
no, there's definitely something else going on. Uh, this is not like the gender gaps that we've seen in the past. Um, what's going on really is that there has not been systematic investment in communities of color, particularly amongst black men by the Democratic Party. And we've seen some investment, we've seen some attention paid to this demographic, but I mean, we do not see a targeted effort to really embrace the concerns and the needs of black men. That is a deficit that we must address. And if there are people and groups who are addressing it, then guess what? They deserve to have those uh, populations or the black men voting for them. But at the end of the day, you can't ignore a people or ignore a group of people and expect them to still perform to the same level that you've expected them to perform in the past. It doesn't work like that. So we cannot systematically continue ignoring or underinvesting in communities of color, inclusive of Native Americans, Asians, or Asian American Pacific Islanders, Latinx communities, and the Black community. Amy, let me ask you about how your group is reaching out to minority voters in rural areas as well as urban areas. Obviously, in urban areas, uh, there are most minority voters maybe in North Carolina, but there are an awful lot in rural areas. How, how are you trying to reach them? Absolutely. So we're going to call this the new American majority <laughs> or better yet, we're going to call them minoritized individuals or people of color, because that word minority actually is a little bit um, old, if you will. But as we refer to minoritized individuals in rural counties or people of color in rural areas, we know that they are special and that they have their own set of issues. And rural people of color in rural areas in the Western part of our state are different and have different concerns. They're the same in terms of just being a person of color in a rural area, but they have different concerns than people who are in the Piedmont triad area and who fall into rural Roxborough, for instance, or Rockingham County or, you know, Person County in those areas. And those friends have different issues than those in Eastern North Carolina from the Northeastern to the Southeastern. So what's important when we're trying to reach out to people of color in, in rural areas is number one, we identify their geography and what is of concern to them and make the issues more localized and not make them statewide issues because they're not, they're very localized. Number two, we have to listen to what their issues are and then amplify those issues in the messaging we present, but then also show them how they can actually have a hand in fixing whatever it is that they express as an issue. And then the third thing is we have to invest in these areas. We have to show up, we have to drive infrastructure their way, we have to figure out what's going on within their areas and figure out how to fix it. And then we hold our elected officials accountable for the things that they should have been doing in office, whether that's a Republican elected official or a Democratic elected official. So part of our work is advocating on behalf of others, not in a lobbying sense, but advocating by expressing what those concerns are to the elected officials locally in those rural areas. I know your focus is on grassroots, but is, is this Senate race the kind of nationally important race that we can expect to see big name Democrats come to North Carolina, the president, the vice president, Barack Obama and Stacey Abrams. Are they going to be coming here to help out and campaign with Sherry Beasley? And you think that'll help? 
I think it will help. Do I know if they're coming? No, I don't know. Would I like to invite them personally? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, They all need to be here because I think this is the type of race that is really all hands on deck. Because if it goes the opposite way that we want it to go and that we expect it to go, then everyone will be talking about North Carolina as going backwards in time. So absolutely, President Barack Obama, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, newly appointed Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, and the incredible leader, Stacey Abrams, I invite all of you to come to North Carolina. Come canvas with us. Come, you know, make phone calls with us. Let's shock the system and show how more than two million people of color who represent North Carolina can show up to vote and really change the tide in who we elect. Amy, uh, mobilizing voters and doing the things that you're talking about costs money. Can you talk about the resources that your group has and are you getting money from the Democratic Party at all? Uh, No, we do not get money from the Democratic Party. We raise money from a variety of philanthropic organizations, uh, individual donors, foundations, grants. You know, we go hard after the resources needed to do this work. So what about you said the Democratic Party isn't providing funds at this time and you guys are working, it sounds like, so hard to help them. Uh, I mean, should they be writing a check and, and and putting more money behind what you're doing? We will not turn down funds unless it is illegal. So <laughs> to, answer, to answer your question, um, we have not explicitly had any funds from the Democratic Party, especially where they are not or are legally compliant and welcome, right? However, we don't work for the Democratic Party. We work for the people of color of North Carolina. That's our audience and that's who we serve. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and, and having this great discussion. We really appreciate you being on um, and thank good luck. You. Thank, thank you, Amy. You. Thank you all. So that was Amy Steele, founder and executive director of the New North Carolina Project, which is working to kind of mobilize and engage North Carolina voters of color. So, guys, what y'all think? I thought she was pretty serious and pretty honest and realized the work she had ahead of her. But I have to tell you, every time I covered an election, every two or four years, I would go into the African-American community and I would hear the same thing. Democrats take us for granted. They only show up at election time. I think that's the kind of... uh, skepticism she might be facing uh, as we go. And and I think the, the inflation, you know, that's that hurts everybody. So that that could be a real stumbling block, too, I think. Yeah, I think she made some good points. And I uh, she's talking about different issues in different parts of the state. You know, like Tim said, I mean, it, black voters are important for Democratic candidates this year and every year. And uh, Democrats need to make sure that they turn out and don't stay home. I think one thing that I thought was noteworthy, you know, we talked about this kind of like starting to be a little bit of a separation among black women and black men in terms of their support for Democratic candidates, that Amy kind of attributed that to a lack of engagement toward uh, African-American male voters. That may be. But, you know, is it possible there's also something else going on in terms of uh, Uh, culturally (laughs) or just, you know, issues that the Democratic Party is putting forth that may not connect with them in a way that it did 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know, but it it may be more than just outreach and talking to voters. I think it may be a little easier for her this time because Donald Trump is not going to be 
officially at least, on the ballot. And I think some black men were attracted to his candidacies from Latino men more so than in past years. So uh, I think she might actually have an easier time on that one. Well, I think outreach is important. You know, I think that's one of the criticisms that Democrats faced in 2020 was that they didn't get on the ground because of the pandemic and other things. And Republicans did. Republicans had a, a good get out the vote effort. They did have a ground game that, uh, that, that paid results for them. We kind of forget, or at least I forget sometimes, just how the summer of 2020, what that was like trying to run a campaign. Democratic candidates were not knocking on doors. I mean, that a lot of their voters did not want someone showing up uh, on their doorstep. And uh, like you said, Jim, Republicans felt more comfortable and were out doing that for months. And this is a midterm election, remember, so turnouts are notorious a little anyway. So, I mean, she's just got a challenge on her hand, but I, I thought she really knew what she was up against and she she's a pretty serious person. We now turn our discussion to unaffiliated voters. Last month, they surpassed registered Democrats to become North Carolina's largest voter group. What does that mean for election year 2022? And just who are these unaffiliated voters? To help us explore these questions, we now turn to Chris Cooper, a professor of political science at Western Carolina University. He's done a lot of good research in this area, which you can read for yourself at oldnorthstatepolitics.com. Chris, welcome to Inside Politics. Start us off by telling us why you think so many people in North Carolina are registered unaffiliated. Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of factors. The, the most important one is our institutional design. And I realize some folks just fell asleep when I said the phrase institutional <laughs> design, but, but I think it's really important, right? We have this semi-closed primary system. And what that means is since 1996, if you're an unaffiliated voter in the state of North Carolina, you get to choose your primary. You get to choose your own adventure every two years. And if we were to change that structure, we would see a lot fewer unaffiliated voters. The other big factor is that a lot of the growth is amongst young people and young people just aren't joiners, right? You've seen this since the conversations we used to have about the decline in, you know, bowling leagues and social capital in the early 2000s. You're seeing that here. They're less likely to join all sorts of groups, including political parties. So how do most of these voters describe themselves politically, liberal, conservative, or somewhere in the middle? It's a little bit all over the map. So there's, there's a little bit of a mostly friendly disagreement amongst folks about how to categorize these voters. Some people look at them and they say, look, they're just shadow partisans. They're people who want to register unaffiliated. So their, I don't know, dating pool is more open. They don't get made fun <laughs> of at parties. They get hired for jobs. But really, they're just shadow partisans. They're really Republicans. They're really Democrats. And certainly, they're there are a lot of folks like that. A lot of these unaffiliated voters really do have strong partisan preferences. But when we do polling, so um, our, our colleague Whitney Manzo at Meredith uh, College did some really good polling where she looked at this question. And what she found was a lot more of the unaffiliated voters are more likely to be in the middle politically. So yes, some are Democrats, some are truly Republicans, but as a proportion, there's a lot more in the middle than there are, let's just say, with the Democrats or the Republicans. But do they tend to vote in the same primary nearly every time, even though they call themselves independent? Yeah, most do. But 
you know, the word most is doing a lot of work in that sentence. I mean, some of the, the movement from primary to primary is important. In 2008, unaffiliated voters went to the Democratic primary. In 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, they went to the Republican primary. In 2018, it was about 50-50. And in 2020, they chose the Democratic primary. So there is enough movement to make a difference in primary elections and overall. Chris, what percentage of unaffiliated voters would you say are truly swing voters that can go either way? Probably about 10, 15 percent, which is a heck of a lot larger than you're going to see, obviously, amongst the the Democratic and and Republican Party registrants. Also think that number is growing over time. Again, as these young people enter the electorate, um, they just don't have these partisan attachments that that most of us, myself included, certainly and my family, probably your family, listeners, families grew up with. And so they're Think of them like unmoored voters. It's like you're you're a boat on a dock and you're you're kind of near the dock, but you're not tied to it. And in a big enough tidal wave one way or the other, the tide comes up enough, you're going to leave the dock. Let's say I'm an unaffiliated voter and I figure out, well, do I want to vote in the Republican or, or Democratic primary this year? Well, hey, the Republicans have a pretty hot primary here. Why don't I get in on that? Um is that happen a lot that people go for the hot primary? And if, and if they do, do they feel invested to stay there in November? Uh, if- yeah, so they do tend to go to the hot primary. So if you notice those years I kind of listed off, like 2008, pretty interesting Democratic mm-hmm. primary, if you recall. It was a guy named Barack Obama. People <laughs> might have heard of somebody else named Hillary Clinton. Right in 2020, the Democrats had a pretty interesting primary. Donald Trump was going to be the nominee on the Republican side. So, yes, there is some bit of some of these folks moving to the more competitive, the more interesting primary. You talked about young voters being uh, unaffiliated and non-joiners. Demographics being what it is, they will eventually get older. Do you see that the unaffiliated segment of the electorate grows with them? And if so, what are the implications down the road? Yeah, I think the implications are large. And yes, I think it will grow with them, right? So there's this sort of age old question social scientists try to figure out, is it generation or is it age, right? Do you age into these same behaviors that the previous generations have? Here, I think we are training, we're uh, educating a bunch of new voters. And it matters what your early experiences are with politics. And for our younger voters today, that is to be disconnected from the party. So if you want to sort of check this yourself, look at the the party uh, registration data about who shows up at college campus polling places. It's overwhelmingly unaffiliated. Until the age of 45, unaffiliated is the largest category in North Carolina politics. Of course, it is overall as well. So I think we're training these folks that you can participate in a democracy without a party. And there's certainly some good things there. What I sometimes worry about, though, is in the long run, the work of parties, what they do to help build democracy. So, you know, the people who are working their Saturdays, putting up signs everywhere, reminding people to go out and vote, and eventually the people who are going to run for office, right? If we're trying to get more and more young people to run for office, well, if they're not members of a party, it's pretty difficult to run for office in this current environment. I think it raises a lot of questions. Do you ever see... The parties here in North Carolina going back to closed primaries where unaffiliated voters can't vote. 
I think it's very possible. So we created this unaffiliated category in 1977 in North Carolina politics. In 1988, the Republican Party opened up their primaries. So in other words, from 77 to 87, if you're an unaffiliated, you locked yourself out of a primary. Well, not surprisingly, nobody tended to choose that option. Once the Republicans opened up their primary, it started to increase. In 96, the Democrats finally opened up their primaries, and that's when it was off to the races. I think if you talk to political strategists, they tend to say they're not real worried in the short run. But again, in the long run, I think if we continue to see this decline, and I expect we will, that they're eventually going to say maybe we should rethink the primary system. This is a place where the parties, not the state, has control. Following up on Jim's question, um, we live in increasingly polarized times politically. So you have uh, a far right and a far left ruling each party. And primaries, in a lot of cases, are the election. So why wouldn't, at some point, these the base of each party wake up and say, and I'm not urging this, but wake up and say, what these these unaffiliated are, are sort of a moderating influence. You mentioned that they are often in the center. We don't want them. And would that create the opportunity for another party that would emerge, a third party, for these think- unaffiliated middle-of-the-roaders? Right. If you want to try to be a third party, it's hard. It takes work. Basically, the entire institution is set up against you being able to succeed. So I I don't see this third party option necessarily happening. But it does raise the question, if there's a disconnect between what the voters are trying to tell us and the institutions that we're setting up as a state, then I think we have to ask ourselves whether we should consider making some changes or at least listening. And you're absolutely right these crossover voters change the nature of a primary. I live in the 11th congressional district way up in the mountains. We're uh, represented by a guy named Madison Cawthorn that folks might've heard of. Well, turns out some of the Democrats aren't real wild about Madison Cawthorn. And there's a group of them uh, running a pack called Fire Madison. The goal is, well, to fire Madison. And they're urging for Democrats to leave the Democratic Party register unaffiliated and vote for this Republican candidate named Wendy Navarez. Obviously, parts of the Democratic Party aren't real happy, but you also have to figure the Republican Party isn't real happy about some number of people leaving the Democratic Party to go vote in their primary with the goal of voting out their incumbent. Do you think there'll be enough uh, people who do that to actually make a difference, even in a crowded primary? You know, make a difference, as you pointed out, in a crowded primary, if the difference maker is stopping Cawthorn from getting to 30 percent plus one vote, which is, of course, the line in the sand to avoid a runoff, maybe. But these are still pretty small numbers. So the day after this Fire Madison group put out their call, so this is when you'd expect the biggest pop, right? People receive the message that are clued in. They change parties. We saw 126 people in the 11th Congressional District change from Democrat to unaffiliated. So not nothing, but 126 votes isn't going to change anything. The day after that, it went to 34 and then to 60. It's worth paying attention to, but I would be surprised if this is the difference maker in the short run on the 11th. One of the dangers of having unaffiliated vote in either primary, some have said, I wonder what your opinion is, that you get the mischievous voter. You kind of referred to it there. But the Democrat who registers unaffiliated so he can vote in the Republican primary and he's going to vote for the weakest candidate. So his guy, 
can win in November. Does that actually happen much or is that sort of a f- fable? Yeah, it's somewhere between fable uh, and, and reality. Look, some folks do it, and but in the scheme of things, it is a pebble dropped into the massive lake of elections. Rush Limbaugh tried this on the other side. So this was in 2008. He urged uh, Republicans to change parties and vote in the Democratic primary and vote for Hillary Clinton with the goal of extending the Democratic primary, making Barack Obama spend more money and perhaps electing who Rush thought was the least, the less electable candidate, Hillary Clinton. Some social scientists came along later, did some studies, and they found out it didn't do a lick of good. So it was kind of a much ado about nothing. Wrapping up, uh, Chris, I, I did want to ask you about newcomers. Uh, I believe North Carolina is only one of nine states where they're, the unaffiliated has the plurality. Um, is that because so many mo- people are moving here from other places and do they tend to be unaffiliated? That's exactly right. So the big rise in unaffiliated is uh, young voters, as we talked about, people you know coming of age and people that are newcomers to the state. So when you sort of track these patterns, you can see that unaffiliated voters are much, much, much more likely to be from somewhere other than the state of North Carolina. And they're also much, much, much more likely to be younger. When you look at the states where unaffiliated is the plurality, um, they're often states that do get a lot of influx of in-migrants. They're also states, again, that make it easy for unaffiliated or nonpartisan or no partisan affiliation voters to vote in whatever primary they want. All right. Great conversation with Chris Cooper at Western Carolina University. Guys, what'd y'all think? My politics IQ went through the roof on that one. He's, uh, he's very good. I, I think the one thing we didn't really get to that, that I wanted to mention is uh, these two parties we have now are incredibly unpopular. And uh, I think that's one reason why people go unaffiliated because they can't stand either party. And I think if we ever got a third party or even a reconstituted party like Bernie Sanders Socialist Party or something, or the Libertarian Party took off. I mean, I think I think there'd be a lot of enthusiasm for that, and the turnout might go up, actually. I thought what was interesting was just, uh, you know, what he's found uh, with demographics and who the unaffiliated voters are. And so many of them are the youngest demographic group, which is just going to age over the years and, and, and probably still be unaffiliated, and what effect that will have on North Carolina politics and, and the North Carolina parties. I think there's kind of an interesting, um, not sure what the right word to describe it is, but if, if you have so many more people registering as unaffiliated, it suggests they're not as partisan. They don't follow politics as closely as people who register with a party. I think that's kind of a fair assessment. But then at the same time, over the last 20 years, we've really seen kind of an explosion in interest at the presidential level. I mean, if you go back to that Bill Clinton, Bob Dole race in 96, <laughs> that was pretty abysmal turnout. And then starting with the Bush Gore, that close race in Florida, we've had kind of a surge of interest and excitement in these races. So it's kind of interesting to me on one hand, people are registering and saying like, I don't want to be a part of this, but they are showing up and voting. I, just kind of kind of weird. If you go to that website I mentioned, you'll see that the turnout is is always low among uh, unaffiliated, much lower than Democrats and Republicans. It's been like 70 percent, 60, 70 percent with the Democrats and Republicans and down to 50 percent for unaffiliated. They're like a sleeping giant. I think if they wake up, 
they could control things, but right now they don't have a really a, a party to, to put their enthusiasm in. Well, so, remember, Chris Cooper said that only 10 or 15% of them are probably truly swing voters. The others have a leaning, either Republican or Democrat. So, But they all do seem to want a third party. I think if you look at this, the research they've done, you ask people about third parties, and the unaffiliated, are, they, they are really interested in that. So we'll see. Jim and Tim, thank you guys very much. And thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Politics, Election 2022. This podcast will drop at least once every two weeks. And as we get closer to Election Day in the fall, we expect to be coming at you more frequently. For Jim Morrill and Tim Funk, I'm Steve Harrison. Inside Politics, Election 2022 is a production of WFAE. WFAE.